Hello and welcome to another episode of the Leaders Sport Business Podcast, the podcast about leaders in sport from leaders in sport. My name is James Emmett, I'm the Editorial Director here at Leaders and as ever I am with my great good colleague and friend, it's the Content Director of Leaders, it's Mr David Kushner. David, how are you? I'm well, thank you. Hello friend. Hi. Hi. Um, I'm fine. Good. How are you? Because you tired, are... Well, you're just off a plane. Just off a plane from China. I've been over to Macau. Yes. Um, shout out to Mark Thomas, by the way, uh, on LinkedIn, recognising the positivity with which we're picking up China and the Chinese sports industry. It's appreciated, Mark, and thanks for listening. Um, yeah, I'm just back from China, where I've pretty much been in China since the last time we were in this room recording a podcast. Yeah, we? so uh, tell us about it. You, We were supporting an event uh, being staged in Macau. Yeah. Uh, very much a, a toe back in the water exercise in terms of uh, getting a feel for uh, where the sports industry and China are at. Yeah, I what's mean, the relationship a t- status? A toe back in the water for us, but a full kind of dive bomb in the deep end for the Chinese <laughs> sports industry. I think absolutely um, back and with a bang. So this was the GBA International Sports Business Summit uh, put together by um, Lanjong Sports. Um, a um, media company based in Beijing and Real League, um, which is a new basketball entertainment brand based out of Hong Kong or funded out of Hong Kong. And uh, yeah, it was um, about uh, the theme was connecting the world through sports. And it was essentially let's put China back on the map as a, um, a place um, for the sports industry to come to and to do business with. And it was it was fantastic. It was what do you remember, David, when um the first kind of event that we did, physical event that we did after COVID, when the restrictions were, basically we didn't have a cap on the numbers. Yes. Um, and the energy. The buzz. The buzz. Uh, it was similar to that. Essentially, this is the first um, sports event that's happened in China since COVID. Um, and yeah, the excitement, energy... Uh, positivity um, were all absolutely tangible from um, yeah, everyone, you know, delega- delegation on the floor to speakers on the stage, some real power players, as we've discussed um, before on this podcast, were there speaking. They stayed throughout the event. Uh, intriguing to have um, to have Yao Ming wander into the um, into the audience as I was uh, moderating a session on um Uh, I was talking to the commissioner of the um, NBL, uh, Australian Basketball League, about how to develop new stars from different countries as Yao Ming wanders in and he's just sort of able to go, oh, oh, Yao Ming's here and our mission is to kind of develop the next Yao Ming. And you can't miss him walking in. You can't, although, uh, yes, um, uh, he he doesn't, apparently Yao Ming does not like... um, his height being drawn attention to. Oh, well, I do apologise. Well, I had to as well. Okay. <laughs> I mean, it's hard not to, surely. Exactly. But, yeah. yeah, but it's his burden and his, you know. Of course, of course. Yeah, he really is very large. Yeah. yeah. Um, what did it tell you being on the ground? There's always at, at our events, whenever we, whenever you go to a business conference, there's always what's said on stage and then there's always what is being discussed and the mood in the margins. Yeah. What did those margin discussions tell you about China's propensity to invest in sports, its ambition to host more sports, and I suppose government appetite and the importance the government may be reattaching to sport. 
Yeah, I mean, very difficult to discern from an event like that um, government uh, proclivity towards spending. I mean, there were government figures there from the Macau and Greater Bay area region. They said what they needed to say, but it's very difficult to kind of, it's really difficult in China to get any kind of view on exactly what the government thinks. Although by um, many accounts on the floor there, um, the one thing that um, you can say for sure that President Xi Jinping is absolutely a committed fan of football and the um, growth of football in in the country. They're starting again on a, another cycle of, of growth. I guess um, a big uh, learning for me uh, or relearning for me was this sort of importance of this concept in China called Guanji, uh, which is essentially... Um, network it's like the the strength of relationships and it's yeah really interesting to see um the power of those relationships in action in the you know the corridors and the banquet halls and away from the stage all of these power players in chinese sport know each other know each other well they know each other's families you know they're really really an interconnected bunch and they move together and they're moving together now forwards um, into uh, more investment into sport, especially around the Greater Bay Area, which is this Macau, Hong Kong, Guangdong province um, area, which is being driven partly by new licenses in um, for the casinos in Macau. Uh, so all these Western brands, big hotel and casino operators, uh, a condition of their new license is they have to spend a, a certain percentage uh, of their revenue on um, non-sporting, uh, non-gaming uh, activities, so naturally they are all looking at sports and entertainment. If they can't spend on gambling, what can they spend on to bring people to their casinos? Uh, so essentially, it's you know, it's sports and entertainment. And it's nearly the Las Vegas model. It's nearly the Las Vegas model, except without the whisperings that actually um, the Las Vegas model isn't very good for gambling, mm. for, like, yes. for gambling <laughs> yeah. revenues, yeah. Um, in terms of having extra sports events drive off the whales. Um, but yeah, no, it was great. Everyone had um, a really a really good time. It was, it was a lot of fun, this event. There was a basketball game um, kind of within it, uh, which Joe Tsai um, played in and hosted. Um uh, this, the breakout star of that game, I would say, uh, Hua Fung Tei, the group president ah, of the One Championship, yes. um, who a very talented uh, player, sunk a few three pointers. Um, yeah, it was really good. There's some some former um, Chinese national team players were in that game as well. So very high scoring affair. Not a lot of um, of defense um, uh, on display. But yeah, it was good. It was great. Good, yeah. good, good, good. Well, uh, glad to see you back. I'm sure we'll have more reflections uh, over the uh, the next few days across uh, several of the uh, leaders' channels and vehicles. Uh, we should say something about uh, people who may want James to um, share the word about this podcast and perhaps even leave us a review. Yeah, leave us a review, please. Thank you. Uh, like, subscribe, review. That's the message. That's the message. Mm-hmm. Um, we've got John Dutton, the CEO of British Cycling, joining us imminently to discuss, uh, well, all sorts of things. Lots going on at British Cycling, lots going on. Olympic year, uh, the governing body model and what that looks governing like. Governing body model, kind of returning. It's, it's, a, it's a really difficult time at British Cycling at the moment, so to set the scene before he comes in. Um, the, 
you know, trying to raise funds in a, an environment that's dominated by football. British Cycling signed a deal with Shell um, not too long ago, which um, proved very controversial and not necessarily massively popular with its membership. Um, and the Tour of Britain, which is the flagship um, road cycling event in um, the UK in Britain, uh, the the operator of that went bust recently. Sweet spot. Uh, sweet spot. Um, and uh, um, John and his team at British Cycling have had to step in to take on the commitment to operate that. Um, so yeah, tricky time in cycling. And he's a busy man because he's just been overseeing a royal visit as well. So we might ask him about that. Mm, yes, indeed. But um, he's about to come in. So I think we should get on with things and move to our news segment. You turn this way, I'll turn that way, and together we've got the full 360 covered. This is 180 Seconds of Sports Biz. The DFL has abandoned plans for an injection of funding in the Bundesliga via a private equity partner following significant fan protests against the proposal. A strategic partnership with CVC Capital Partners had been mooted, including investment of up to a billion euros. And in December, the clubs in the Bundesliga's top two divisions narrowly voted through a proposal to negotiate with potential partners. US private equity firm Blackstone had already withdrawn from talks, but the entire process has been halted for now at least, amid opposition from a section of fans and a number of clubs, and split views even within several clubs. Two mixed reviews, Apple has launched a new sports app for scores, stats and betting odds. Apple Sports is already available as a free download in the US, Canada and the UK. It won't, however, immediately be a default app on new phones. Apple's Eddie Q said it has been designed specifically to engage users only for short bursts of time. Outside the new app, Apple's second season of live and global Major League Soccer coverage began at the weekend. Red Bull has signed a strategic partnership with the Qatari-owned Premier Paddle Tour, becoming a main partner and a broadcaster across selected territories. The deal, brokered by Pitch International, also includes a broadcast production element and will run until 2027. Red Bull has also recently acquired a majority stake in the Bora Hansgrohe World Tour cycling team and rebranded one of its two F1 teams with sponsorship from Visa and Cash App. Meanwhile, as we record on Tuesday, Red Bull's internal investigation into allegations made by a female employee against F1 team principal Christian Horner is continuing as the new season begins this weekend in Bahrain. Horner remains at work for the world champion team and attended pre-season testing last week. F1 and Red Bull's future engine partner Ford have both called on Red Bull to urgently conclude its investigation and communicate its results. Ford CEO Jim Farley has written to the team expressing his frustration at the situation. Ford has signed a deal to partner Red Bull on its engine development from 2026. Emirates has become the official airline of Wimbledon, completing its own Grand Slam of sponsorships in tennis. It has sponsored the US Open since 2012, French Open since 2013, Australian Open since 2014 and has been an ATP tour partner since 2013. And Australia's NRL is preparing for the start of its season this weekend when in a historic first it will stage two Telstra Premiership games in Las Vegas. 
the games will be played at the Allegiant Stadium, which hosted the Super Bowl recently. Last week, the league outlined an Australian $103.1 million increase in profits to $701.1 million last year after a 25% rise in crowds and a 14% jump in linear TV audiences. It's now looking to establish a sports betting partnership in the US as a future revenue driver. And that was 180 seconds of SportsBiz. That was 180 seconds of sports biz. I think it was more like 128 seconds of sports biz, but you know, can't get it right every time, can you? Um, David, we're joined now um, by a very special guest. Um, it's the chief executive of British Cycling, no longer the new chief executive of British Cycling we've established, Mr. John Dutton. John, why are you no longer the new CEO? How long have you been in the role? Um, I've been in the role 10 months uh, now, uh, James, so uh, yeah, the new title is gone, yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, very much enjoying my uh, uh, my tenure at British Cycling. Do you know everyone's name now, 10 months in? Uh, not quite, not quite. We've got a big team, um, we've got many different partners, but uh, yeah, working hard to be visible and uh, being a good role model. And I believe, uh, John, you have had a busy few days. Um, you're joining us on a Tuesday. Last night you had a uh, a business gathering up in Manchester. We did, yeah. How was how was that? Tell us about that. It, it was great. I mean, we, we've tried really hard to um, put our best foot forward, uh, reach out to the business community. I uh, had a great event in London uh, a few weeks ago, so last night was Manchester. Uh, so a bit bit like the tour of Britain, which we might come on to later. We are doing a tour of Britain for the business communities, and uh, if anyone would like to reach out and have a conversation, we would be delighted to do that. There, I've seen a few of these on your LinkedIn, I think, John. Uh, Lovely blue um, colour palette to them. They're very British cycling colours. Blue, 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 white and red, yeah, we're, exactly. uh, we're on brand. GB. Um, we talked about this a little bit last week, actually, this idea of um, sports rights holders doing in-house events, well, doing events themselves for a particular strategic purpose. How many of these business events have you done so far? Uh, just two, uh, two, but we're up and running in yeah. the new year, so I'm trying to deliver probably 10 across um, yeah. the rest of this year. Obviously, we've got a slight distraction in summer when we come to Paris with Olympics and Paralympics. Yeah. Um, but yeah, we're, we're keen to um, deliver these events ourselves, uh, engage with the wider business uh, community, tell a story, yes. um, and yeah, challenge people maybe for some of the stereotypes, myths and perceptions uh, of the organisation. So it's fun, it's networking, and it's a little bit about how to get involved. Um, it's all, all, it ticks all of those boxes. Great. And uh, just prior to that, uh, continuing your busy few days, uh, you had some royal visitors uh, at the velodrome uh, late last week, I think, um, which I imagine occupied quite a lot of your time uh, in the build-up. It, it did. Uh, it was a great day on Friday. Uh, so we um, did three things. Uh, we celebrated our one-year anniversary of Limitless, our parent talent ID program, uh, which was fantastic to hear some lived um, examples of people who have been through the program. And ultimately, hopefully, they will um, participate in the future Paralympics and who knows, medal at those. Um, it, it, with royal visitors, uh, which was great. Uh, and also, it was the first time in four years that we had our velodrome in operation for our national track championships. It's undergone a significant reform. It's the home of the GB team, but uh, to see the velodrome being used for the purpose it was designed for was uh, fantastic. So yeah, busy few days, but um, yeah, really positive. Which which royals did you have? Oh, uh, the Duchess of Edinburgh. Uh, Sophie is our patron, right. and was joined by uh, Edward um, as well. I imagine you you did a bit of uh, that kind of royal. I'm going to call it schmoozing, John. You might not be able to call it that, but um, in your previous role at the the Rugby League World Cup. Um, 
obviously I would imagine that sort of visit requires a very careful build-up there's a lot of protocol to be observed how do you how do you find that though I mean are you busy really thinking before they arrive about your, your small talk how do you approach it as a as a leader of the organization that is going to be on show I have a super team, uh, David, who did all of the Do all your small talk for you. all, 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 all of the planning. Um, uh, the Dutch Ages of Edinburgh was actually with us for uh, about four hours, uh, but it was brilliant because it's an opportunity to meet so many people, um, engage with both team partners, uh, watch some cycling, uh, have a go uh, in our trikes uh, from Para uh, program. But uh, yeah, it's fair to say um, my history with the royal family started um, with Buckingham Palace with Prince Harry on his last public engagement um, when we did the draws for the Rugby League World Cup before uh, he ventured off to. North America, so it's fair to say there was uh, quite a significant amount of media attention on that. It's event. a ni- nice thing to be able to say. My history with the royal family yeah, began with dot dot dot. A nice thing to be able to say. I was essentially the straw that broke the camel's <laughs> back with with Harry's participation in royal duties. I won't I won't lay claim to that. What what I do do remember is um, they made an Instagram story and um, they asked for a track uh, and we gave them the Stone Roses. This is the one. We hadn't quite thought through the lyrics uh, of that because unfortunately that starts with uh, I'd like to leave this country for a month for Sundays. <laughs> Which uh, certainly caught the uh, media attention, but uh, yeah, some fa- fa- fabulous moments. And it, it, is it great just to, um, you know, whether it's a team, whether it's uh, just individuals uh, who can engage, and particularly that para uh, aspect, it's uh, pretty compelling. Super stuff. Uh, we're going to come on to talk about all things British cycling. I know there's a lot going on in your world uh, shortly, uh, but first, uh, James, we should probably. Uh, just uh, dot the I's and cross the T's on a couple of the stories that we mentioned in the 180 or thereabouts seconds of sports biz. And maybe where we should start is with this uh, news from Germany about the abandonment of the uh, plan to uh, bring a private equity partner aboard the Bundesliga. Yeah, the second time it's been abandoned. Um, and this time they did think that it was going to go through. I was out in China um, oh, yeah. with um, Per Norbert, the CMO of the Bundesliga, CMO of the DFL. This has been causing some consternation within the organisation of the DFL, unsurprisingly. Um, and uh, I mean, perhaps it's not a surprise that fan protest has come up again Um, it was narrowly voted through um, by the clubs the fans have now um, kicked up a fuss and um, got it brought back Um, Germany has a history of strong kind of fan protest to what they see as over commercialization it's one thing um, you know the organization the people who are charged with commercializing the league to um, to be peeved by this I think it's another thing to think um, whether everyone involved in German football should be peeved by, by this. I, I do think this is um, what's happening here is a question uh, around the very fundamentals of what sport should be. I think, you know, obviously uh, DFL, that is the commercial entity that runs the top two divisions of football in Germany. Um, they have a traditional corporate structure and I'm sure they have traditional kind of business objectives and metrics to grow, grow, grow. Growth is at the centre of every kind of capitalistic um, entity going. But should that be the case for sport? You know, perhaps uh, perhaps automatic growth every year isn't something that... Um, that we should think about in sport. And I think this sort of nicely positions that debate um, 
for everyone involved in sport. John, <laughs> German football expert, John, or, or no, not not a football expert at, at all, James. Uh, I, I just think private equity forms of investment. Um, is here to stay and it will prompt more difficult conversations for more people as that sustainable business model um, looms into view. It still feels like, uh, I know the pandemic, um, it feels like a long time ago, but it's still that lingering impact and people trying to get back on the feet. So um, yeah, maybe be staved off, um, great um, from a fan's perspective, but I think uh, in the world of sport, in the socioeconomic, the challenging geopolitical uh, environment we live in it's probably mm. that uh, conversation is here to stay I don't think it's necessarily great from a fan perspective though like fans are naturally opposed to um, big financial entities coming into their sport but it's not doesn't, well particularly in Germany well, it doesn't mean to say that there is automatically going to be change which will be negative for fans um, there is just a natural opposition there, I think. But this is a real, this by all accounts is a real and has been a real national debate in Germany, sort of almost forget football. This goes much, much broader than that in terms of it is about, uh, as you say, the, What's the, football the for? place and yeah. role of the, of the yeah. sport. And what is sport for? The, the, ch- the, the challenge is exacerbated, though, for the Bundesliga and for DFL and, and you know, people like uh, Pear who are working and you know have a mandate to grow the league because all their immediate European league rivals have done these types of deals and to some extent at least will be receiving the benefits of them even if those benefits are a relatively short-term injection of cash. Yeah the fear now um, within the Bundesliga and certainly the fear um as articulated by Pear, is that German football teams will very quickly lose ground on their rivals from other European leagues in terms of their performance on a European stage. And I guess the ramifications that that will then have from a commercial perspective straight after that. So it's basically, you know, money breeding money. Um, and, and that debate's happening at the moment in the UK. It's, it's yeah. obviously uh, ownership, so it's a, it's a different form of private equity, but we've seen, you know, the, the um, challenges around the Glazer family and what happened with the Bramovich, and, and, and it's, it's actually here. We've seen it um, in the UK at the moment. Yeah. Um, it's going to run and run. It's going to run and run. It's not over yet, certainly, and... Uh, you can well imagine the DFL and Bundesliga working out how to bring at least a version of this to the table again and try and do so in a way that maybe each time just sort of chips away at uh, this, uh, well, whether it's a majority or a really vocal minority of fans who are absolutely dead set against it. Um, It's interesting because another of the stories in the 180 or thereabout seconds of sports biz that we uh, touched on was what's happening this weekend with the NRL, um, Australian Rugby League, of course, and the Telstra Premiership. New season starting. Probably not something ordinarily that we would mention, to be honest, but uh, the point of interest here really is that there's uh, two games to kick off the season happening in Las Vegas, which is a first for the league. Big push. Uh, Russell Crowe's been uh, front and centre. Um, is he still a team owner? I think he is still he, he a team is. owner. So yeah. Sydney Rabbitohs, yeah. Yeah, and he's, uh, you know, he is the definition of a very credible, authentic celebrity fan of Rugby League. And he has uh, been uh, helping to promote these games, uh, which will be 
played at the Allegiant Stadium, the the, uh, stadium that hosted the Super Bowl uh, recently. And John, you were saying something interesting before we switched the microphones on about the, uh, I suppose, the relationship between rugby league and this sort of institutional investment, because we know that uh, football is not the only sport that uh, private equity is, uh, you know, circling. Yeah, and the Super League clubs here in the UK had the opportunity. Uh, Private equity stood in front of them and and they rejected that offer um, at the time. Uh, Obviously, they're now working with IMG on the big sort of strategy uh, discussion. Uh, But it's fascinating to see what will happen um, in Las Vegas. Uh, The NRL, um, a a huge and very successful uh, sports league. Um, Not the first time that there's been a foreign to uh, the US. We took a game to Denver at the Mile High Stadium, an international game. And I think the challenge for Rugby League, I, I, I am in my 46th season of watching my uh, professional rugby league uh, team um, and have a huge passion for the sport. Um, The game, to be successful, needs a proper international uh, structure and I think that's the missing element. Um, Undoubtedly, the NRLC opportunities uh, in the States, both from broadcast, particularly from uh, gambling. Um, So it will be very interesting to see what happens. I I hope it succeeds, I really do. There's a group of sports who you could probably genuinely group together uh, and are actively looking to, from probably quite a low base, uh, make a statement in the US. Uh, and we can talk about what what success looks like in a country as big as that uh, with such a mature sports industry, sports landscape. But there's Rugby League. Rugby Union obviously has set plans for the Men's World Cup to take place there in the not-too-distant future. Cricket, obviously, has been making a big push, as we know. Um, There's a little bit of the Olympic involvement there around LA 2028, but there's a World Cup coming up that is going to be partially played in uh, the US uh, a little bit later this year, including India versus Pakistan in a a pop-up stadium in New York. Um, Darts, I would throw in there as one that is actively looking to build in the US and and there's probably a lot of shared learnings here if I was if I was in charge of not just rugby union as the sort of closest um, in uh, you know in nature to to rugby league but if I was if I was running cricket if I was looking after the darts I'd be keeping a very close eye on what rugby league is doing what the NRL specifically is doing in the states over the next few days but as you say with a definite plan to tap into the sports betting boom because uh, I think there's there's probably some transferable lessons there for quite a few sports. I think it's a fascinating time and um, we had a team to Toronto Wolfpack uh, that played in Super League uh, and I was heavily involved um, in that and we looked at it from an athlete development perspective so if you take NFL the college system is just incredible and the NFL is an in- incredible product but a- athletes that don't make it and fall out don't have a club system like they do in the UK so, so we, we saw that as an opportunity in Rugby League and I think Rugby Union with the World Cup looming in uh, 2031 um, I just think that's a fantastic opportunity so fusing together the commercial aspects but also that talented playing population it's, uh, yeah, it's going to be really interesting. And on that note, actually, there was a very interesting uh, story that was tucked away a few weeks ago um, about an expansion franchise in Major League Rugby. So this is Rugby Union in the US that is effectively being co-owned by World Rugby and uh, US Rugby um, because there's a, you know, a clear focus there on developing young American talent. And as you say, a lot of those coming straight out of the the masses in uh, college sports. To bring the conversation around to uh, another um, 
uh, section of John Dutton's Venn diagram of uh, professional interests. There's actually a really um, interesting new cycling league in America as well. Have you? Have you? You must have come across. Yeah, this. Well, yeah. I, th- I can't remember the name of the lady who. What's well, a lady who heads it up? But she has a very strong background in um, bringing European soccer um, to the US and commercializing um, European soccer brands over there. Um, so yeah, interesting times for chat challenges, sports challenges in the US. And a lot of those sports challenges in the US will probably want to be getting their latest scores on the hottest new app in town, or not, as the case may be. It's the new Apple Sports app. Uh, James, have you downloaded it? No, because um, as you well know, David, I am a, a relatively recent convert to Samsung um, hardware. Uh, Yes, yes, I am aware of that. Um, So this is a scores and stats app. Is it anything more than that, David? No, for the moment, no. And what I find interesting about it is that despite all the conjecture and, of course, all our LinkedIn feeds have been full of analysis about what this means and what this suggests uh, about Apple's global and wider sports strategy, this is, in the words of Eddie uh, Q, the, uh, the product services lead at Apple, an app designed to be uh, for very quick use. It is literally a scores app designed to be only a sports app. It's not some sort of, at least what they're saying is, it's not some sort of, you know, starting point for a catch-all Apple sports app that's going to house everything. Sure, there will be a link, I'm sure, to its Major League Soccer coverage. Uh, but there's uh, there's nothing more to this than a scores and stats app that hasn't stopped all sorts of rampant speculation about what this could mean, and you know is this Apple's first foray into examining a sports betting proposition? Is it a suggestion that they're going to build out a big sports editorial hub editorial platform to support its various live sports programming? The answer to all those questions may well be yes, but for the moment this is. Uh, yeah, this is scores. John, you're an iPhone guy? Uh, iPhone, yeah, and, and certainly looking um, forward to seeing uh, cycling uh, results, the proliferation of cycling events, of which there are many on the uh, new app. Mm, difficult to sort of compress the cycling results in quite the same way. Uh, yes. Yeah. Um, should we talk cycling now? Yes, okay. please. Um, John, Paris 2024, just around, well, it's just around the corner now, isn't it? Yeah. Matter of weeks, months? Uh, well, it depends. depends, depends know, I mean, weeks and months, I are suppose. Are you counting but, yeah. it down? You're an Olympic sport now. Everyone seems to yeah. count down. How many days until oh, Paris? I, I don't know exactly. We're coming up to 100 days. Right. Uh, it's, really, it's really exciting, both yeah. from an Olympic and Paralympic um, perspective. Um, the team are in good shape. Uh, we're chasing qualification at the moment. We have athletes, riders, literally across the world. Um, but yeah, we're, uh, we are very much looking forward to it. And just to sort of cement the importance of Paris, we've had Tokyo and Rio before. We have LA and Brisbane after so an Olympic and Paralympic Games in our own time zone uh, I think that's pretty special and with some of the new sports and we know LA will be quite radically different uh, we're super excited about BMX Freestyle which did feature previously in Tokyo but I I just think uh, now in a European environment um, which is more a lifestyle uh, sport um, so yeah we are wonderfully excited Uh, we just need to get everyone qualified fit healthy and well and um, yeah the competition will then take care of itself it feels like I mean you mentioned um, you know Tokyo and and Rio before it it honestly feels like there hasn't been a a proper Olympics for so long because of Covid because of you know the the lack of of fans of this backdrop of extraordinary kind of carnival atmosphere really looking forward to the games 
Just well, really I'm, I'm to glad it. to hear it. So obviously there's a huge performance element, as you said, in terms of making sure the team is ready and prepared and has everything it needs. From your perspective on the executive side, what are you? what does your planning look like in terms of how you make the most of the games on behalf of British Cycling? It's exactly that, David. It's using the on-field um, success. Um, British Cycling is synonymous with high performance and, and, and performing well, and we hope for more of the same. Um, but it's about what we do um, with that moment. And um, yes, we'd love to increase participation. Um, we have just launched a social impact programme that connects more deeply with local communities. Uh, we're just about to relaunch our new membership um, proposition. Um, we're going to be really active in and around Paris and to use that opportunity, you know, squeeze every last drop out of it. And, 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 and new heroes as well. You know, we, we have seen um, the amazing, talented uh, Sir Chris Hoy and the Kennys and Bradley Wiggins and all of those people. And probably some of the superstars at the moment are young riders that aren't necessarily identifiable with the whole population. I'm pretty sure post Paris that they will be, and that that then gives another opportunity again. I always think there's a bit of an element of luck. Obviously, the British Olympic team in general has won a lot of medals at the last few Olympics, and it seems to me that there's an opportunity and it isn't always in your control for example from a cycling perspective but there's an opportunity for a real breakout moment and there's something there's obviously the performance side and making sure you're absolutely tuned and you know there's there's gold medals at the end of the races but there's also something about particularly the way that the tv rights work in the uk now being on screen at the right time and as you say a prime time olympics uh, in europe you know our time difference probably gives you uh, the best shot but sometimes it's the sometimes it's the hockey team just you know i remember i think it was rio where they were playing in a gold medal match 9 p.m on whatever night it was but very much prime time on bbc one there is an element of uh, things being slightly out of your control in terms of cycling getting that moment isn't there there the probably is, um, David. I think that's uh, very fair, but it's just about preparing well, um, and there will be some new superstars um, that people will see. And uh, I think we all remember the shot of Charlotte Worthington doing a 360 degree um, in um, Tokyo, which was amazing from a freestyle perspective. Kai White, best driver, coming together at, you know after being victorious. So there will be more of those moments. But it's what about we, what we do with them? So I, I see winning gold medals as as the out put of the work and it's about the outcomes that we can drive from that how we use on-field success to reach more people um, I'm in a privileged position of being in a sport where it's an active form of transport um, which has an amazing opportunity we've just done a piece of research recently that shows a third of the adult um, UK population have ridden a bike in the last 12 months you know, and, and that for us from a market share opportunity is a great opportunity and perhaps in the past we've focused really on the sport uh, and I want to mo- make sure now we focus more on um, active travel, community, uh, campaigning, um, social impact outcomes and we will then generally connect m- with more of the population um, by doing that. The lines between sport, music, fashion, entertainment and media are continuing to blur. This kaleidoscope is creating new opportunities for sports organizations, major brands, and everyone else operating in the entertainment sector. And it's that search for where new business growth can be found that is the rationale behind Leaders in Sport and SBJ bringing you Force. Force is your sports and entertainment showstopper. It's a two-day event experience bound for the Big Apple this May on the 21st and 22nd. 
joined over 600 innovators, disruptors, and creatives set to be in attendance. You can keep up to date at www.4-se.com and we hope to see you this May. Let's talk a little bit about um, the governing body model um, because depending on who you speak to, everybody seems to have a view about uh, the health of the governing body model and it links a little bit to what we were talking about, I suppose, in terms of private equity and new forms of funding and what that means in terms of the structure of organisations. You probably have people at one end of the spectrum who, you know, even even at best acknowledge that there are some challenges around the, the governing body model and you have maybe people at the other extreme who think the model is a write-off, it's finished, it's toast, it's over, there needs to be a completely new way, it all needs to be ripped up and you need to start again. Sure. Should we do, before we ask that question, should we do a quick refresh on what that model is, David? Yes, where go that, on. Where that go funding on. Comes refresh, from. refreshers. The national governing body model here in the UK, at least, so majority, well, a large portion of the funding uh, comes from the national lottery or comes from a government entity, and then that is supplemented by other revenue streams, bigger and smaller, other different governing bodies. But British Cycling would have membership as one, sponsorship as another, plus events revenue. I would suggest. Yeah, if you say, if you take the pie from British Cycling, half of it is restricted funding. It comes from a performance uh, program, and we are very grateful um, for that. Of course, that's the preparation for the athletes. A quarter of the pie is more we have a say but it still has some restrictions and that's Sport England funding for the community sport and then the final quarter of the pie is the money that we self-generate and then we decide how we spend my focus is to make sure that quarter is bigger so that we can um, be in charge more of our own destiny so how challenged is that model from your perspective in the hot seat I suppose the word I would use, David, to describe it is it distressed um, across national governing bodies. And I have a really strong peer network and we all um, have our own individual challenges. Um, governance, I think, is a massive challenge. Um, I think we're still living in somewhat in uh, with an archaic governance model. And one of the things that we want to do at British Cycling is to modernise. Um, in reaching more people who behave differently, we've got to be prepared and um, have a modern, a modern value proposition. So is that, John, a little bit about speed of decision making committee you know this idea there's a perception i think still that there's a lot of committees in these kind of organizations it, it, it is and, and, and community sport couldn't exist without volunteers so it's a very fine balance to make sure and, and we go back to the pandemic and we lost a lot of volunteers across the whole of community sport so it's about trying to take people with us what one of the uh, things that we are working towards is effectively having three bits to the business that can behave in three different ways so we are the governing body a membership organization in receipt of public funds that takes limited risk we then have an event subsidiary company which will be a commercial arm of the organization which can behave very differently and very uh, with great agility and with great speed uh, and then a sort of third bit which is more the charitable foundation bit which is for the good of the sport and if we can work to that model we've got three different bits all coherent and all joined together but can behave differently the agility the speed of decision making um, when we come back to investment and whatever that might look like uh, that's something i'm personally really interested in um, but we've got to behave differently um, and that, that's really key from a modernization perspective what else is distressed about that model i mean again different governing bodies have different obviously different sports that they govern um, but within those there are lots of varieties i mean british cycling has I would say um, both a, a kind of an opportunity and a challenge in that there are um, many and an increasing number of disciplines within cycling. 
um, which require focus yeah. and airtime, and you have to make sure that everyone's been given a, a fair slice. You might see it with tennis, for example, and this emerging kind of um, argument about who controls paddle. Yeah. And um, uh, is that an area that sort of concerns you with, with the, the model as well? I, I, I absolutely see it uh, potentially as a threat, and and, and it's hard. Um, and different stakeholders, different partners, different people want different things. Um, we have we govern seven disciplines, and we talk about them being disciplines. They're effectively seven sports within their own right. Uh, and we've also got many other people now knocking on the door to try and come and join the party: trials, snow bike, gravel, uh, etc. But I, I just see that as an opportunity, and I think we've got a different value proposition, a different offer to different audiences, and in particular the urban sports. And, and we're trying to co-collaborate with um, sport climbing, with braking, and with skate, who are doing amazing things. And our BMX freestyle product sits perfectly in that. That's music, it's lifestyle, it's culture, it's radically different from sport. And we need to start to think differently about how we deliver those events and attract different people. So there is tension um, across all of those disciplines, uh, but I, I just see enormous opportunity if we behave differently. Mm-hmm. What, what are the particular challenges of operating in a market like the UK that is totally dominated in terms of sports media by football and I guess particularly the Premier League. I got into trouble a few weeks ago by um, calling the Premier League a behemoth, but in a really positive um, way. I, I mean, the Premier League... A happy one. A, a happy one, and, tra- and transcends a, a lot of sport, and does some amazing things as well in, in communities through the foundation um, work. What that means is it, it, it's really hard. It's hard commercially to succeed, uh, and we all know that the commercial market has changed radically since uh, the pandemic. So we're on a journey about being storytellers, uh, about connecting with communities in different ways, and again, goes back to that winning gold medal is great that cannot be the be all and end all of a national governing body and I I think if we um, look through the eyes of people who have now a displaced uh, lifestyle in terms of um, society um, how how can we play a part and if if you the big prize potentially is productivity productivity is linked to health happy healthy workforce healthy people that also involves removing some of the barriers to participation that might be in a cycling way the provision of the bike it might be actually our most talented athletes, we're not getting to them yet, so we need to supercharge that by being hyper-local and more. To do that, we need investment, um, David, and to do that, we need commercial revenue to come into the organisation. And if we can do that, at 25%, that quarter of the pie, if that's half the pie, that's a game-changer in terms of what we can do and the decisions that we can make. That commercial revenue, um, again, with football as the kind of spectre that looms large across any kind of commercial department in sport, it's probably fair to say that there isn't a queue of businesses outside many national governing body doors sort of waiting to spend multi-million pounds on, on sponsorship. Bridge Cycling obviously has had sort of controversial elements to its sponsorship acquisition in, in recent years. What's your take on uh, kind of that balance between making sure members are happy but also commercialising properly, appropriately to grow the sport as you need to do? It's hard, yeah, uh, and that's the uh, that, that's the sort of challenge of being a leader and a leader of a big national um, governing body. I, I think the staff, I think this is right, uh, James. So, it, it, from a UK funded sports perspective, sixty uh, percent of the commercial revenue was attributed to BC, mm-hmm. and and you just think about that. That that again says, well, maybe the model does need changing. Is it utterly broken? Perhaps not, but it does need changing. To how can people represent GB outside of the Olympics and Paralympics have the bit 
visibility that can drop grow then the commercial model. Um, I, I think we uh, we have many um, aspects to that, um, but it's hard. It's really challenging. I mean, you want to be a membership organisation, a governing body. We want to deliver more events. We want to deliver a social impact programme. We want to get more people healthy. That that's quite a big chunk of work for an organisation that financially um, has some challenges, and, and and we are no different. I don't think to many others. You've got some more stuff to sell this year, John. Um, tell us a little bit about uh, how you, how British Cycling has has ended up um, with the commercial rights to the men's and women's tour of tours of Britain. Yeah, two two tours of Britain. Two tours. Yeah. Um, so so we have a new five year event vision uh, across four different areas: road, off road, urban, and track. Um, we were going to deliver that uh, anyway, underpinned by the Social Impact Programme. Uh, and then the Tour of Britain for men, of which we uh, own the IP and the commercial rights. Uh, long uh, story, but effectively we've taken them back in-house. Uh, we've also created a brand new proposition uh, for women. Um, and we're in a race against the clock to deliver those and deliver those in a sustainable way. Uh, anything on the highway, on the road, is really expensive. Um, and you know, delivering big major events. Our, our Julian O'Crown, our national domestic tour, of which we know more than a million people will stand at the side of the road and have a great time. So we are determined to deliver it this year. We're determined then to grow the properties uh, thereafter, and we're determined to connect with the people that stand at the side of the road through some of the things that I've already uh, mentioned. And if we can do that, that then uh, hopefully turns the dial in terms of the commercial revenue, more broadcast eyes on it. We've got the domestic uh, coverage here, but also internationally. Um, so yeah, it's a big play. Events will be a really big part of our future, and that's the bit about having a commercial arm that we can maybe just to be a bit more adept, agile and nimble. Let's talk a little bit about uh, about your background, John, because before this job, uh, you had another very high profile job uh, here in the UK, which was running the Rugby League World Cup, uh, a tournament that was delivered very successfully in the end, I guess, after a number of uh, significant and unexpected uh, challenges and delays and uh, some controversies along the way. Um, you're now in a job uh, where there are obviously big events like the Olympics, like the, the Tours of Britain that you just talked about, but uh, it's a little bit uh, less of a fixed end point in terms of the organisation that you're leading. How are the rhythms of this job different from those of running a, a, a local organising committee for a, a World Cup? Yeah, well, thank you for your very kind words. I mean, it was a seven-year journey on the Rugby League uh, World Cup. Just really proud of what we delivered despite the adversity. I, I guess the main difference is every morning when I woke up, and it became an obsession. It became a personal obsession. I was thinking about one thing, you know, delivering the tournaments, and we had a date, and obviously the date moved by 12 months, but we had the date and we delivered the tournament. Uh, whereas being a chief executive of national governing body, I never ever envisaged myself being a CEO of, a, a, of an NGB, uh, but I'm thoroughly enjoying the challenge. Uh, the challenge is different, is that when I wake up in the morning, I'm not thinking about one single thing. I'm thinking about multiple things. And I guess the analogy of the, the, the pizza dough, you've just been stretched literally all over the place and you just make sure that the pizza dough doesn't snap and break, the elastic doesn't uh, snap because you stretch too far. Uh, so it's a bit of focus. Uh, some of the things I've done uh, in my first few uh, months um, moved to an, a new strategy. Uh, current strategy now fits on one page. I'm, I like simplicity, simplicity, focus, direction, clarity. Is that an A4 page, John? It's, it's an A4 page. There's, no, there's absolutely no cheating. Okay, good. Um, a, a, a roadmap that, again, if it's not on the roadmap, one page, uh, then we're not doing it. Um, and bringing an organisation that has um, had some adversity uh, previously, some brand challenges, reputation, 
uh, financial challenges, etc. But but bringing an organisation uh, together, so I'm thoroughly enjoying the challenge. It's definitely different, uh, but my passion for events and my background uh, is in events, and that's hopefully what I can contribute to our five-year vision. Uh, social impact programme in rugby league was widely celebrated, and I think that tackling inequalities, providing opportunities, um, I just think it's the way forward for sport, and we shouldn't just be delivering sport for the sake of sport. It's brilliant. Uh, it can it can change people's lives, and uh, that's utterly compelling. Seven-year journey to get to the Rugby League um, World Cup. Immovable, well, movable. <laughs> was an immovable deadline until COVID came along. But then you had another immovable deadline and you had to work to it, uh, and you did. We've talked about the challenges of kind of committee culture, a, um, an inefficiency in decision-making processes. Have you worked out a way yet in your, in your job here to kind of inject deadline culture kind of urgency culture into into how things are done yeah and, and i'm really enjoying it and i'm surrounded by really talented people and, and i have been fortunate throughout my career to uh, just work with some amazing people that just inspires you and, and, and we've had some adversity in the team uh, recently i sent the team a message this morning and uh, just said you know we look out for each other we look after each other and, and it's really powerful and, and being part of that um the jim collins the flywheel you know you put your shoulders to the wheel and you try and turn it it doesn't turn as soon as you get it turning and it gathers the momentum of its own and I'm starting to see some of that at British Cycling and, and that's really powerful but undoubtedly there'll be a number of more bumps in the road um, having to wake up in the morning to receive a phone call from friends in Australia to say we're not coming to your tournament and uh, finding out we'd uh, got a number of uh, minutes before that went into the public domain um, you know that that's probably held me in good stead to uh, deal with a few uh, a few of the challenges that we face at the moment. Uh, what's your plan for Paris? Have you got your days mapped out? What does it What does it look like for the CEO of? Are you uh, taking your bike? Uh, I, I need to take my bike, don't I? Yeah, go on the Eurostar and take my bike. I, I haven't really made any plans yet. I, I am supporting uh, my performance director, who is uh, a, a wonderful human being, who is just yeah utterly focused. So for me, um, I'll go and do whatever is needed of me. But we'll be supporting and cheering the team, um, and then really working hard on what that looks like. Um, in between because don't forget we've got the Paralympics and we're, we're gonna I think we're gonna do pretty well at the Paralympics got so many talented uh, para athletes uh, and again that's a moment of celebration Paris will look fantastic uh, the broadcast pictures will be stunning um, we should all enjoy it and, and live the moment but then it's what we do uh, afterwards so we'll be doing the thinking before we get to the end excellent stuff um john we've got um an old colleague of yours russell scott on the podcast next week um, by coincidence um he is now uh, ceo of an exciting sounding organization called world horse racing uh, i think he runs world horse racing but i'm i'm not sure um do you have a question for russell do we have a question for Russell? Gosh, you put me on the spot. Um, no. Uh, how, how is Russell going to use his uh, incredible knowledge to uh, fast forward the uh, the world of, uh, do you say international horse racing? World, 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 horse world, racing. world, world horse racing. R- rugby league and horse racing have a few similarities, but not many. So maybe if he can uh, use his learnings from the rugby league World Cup, and uh, yeah, that will, I'd be really interested in what he's going to do. That we will ask him that, um, John. It's been a great pleasure to have you with us. Thank, thanks for coming in, and uh, good luck in Paris. Thank you very much.